if you haven't got a Bible, there are some at the back, and there are also some nice hardback books, pink books, um, so you feel free to take your notes in, so they're also on the back table if anybody wants to grab one, please do. We're in Matthew chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 to 12 today. Rachel's got some books there. If anybody hasn't got one, feel free to put your hand up to grab one. Thanks, Rachel. So Matthew chapter 2, starting from verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herald heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least of rulers of Judea. For you will come out, from out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Harold heard this, uh, when then Harold called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went in their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herald, they returned to their country by another route. Let's just pray for Greg. Um, Heavenly Father, we just pray for Greg as he comes up and preaches to us, Lord. And we thank you for your word, Lord, and for the words that you have um, put in there, Lord. God, I just pray that we will just learn more of what you want to say, that we will just learn more about um, the birth of our Saviour, Lord, um, and that our hearts may be changed. Amen. Right, yeah, so keep your, um, your Bibles open, please. And if you don't have one of those Matthew books, snag one of them. Um, uh, I find sometimes, even if I don't look back at my notes, just like taking notes on something helps me stay focused and remember things. Um, yeah, well, let's, I want to start talking about, uh, oh, I'll take a sip of tea. Um, talking about astrology. Is that your average um, church chat, is it? The, um, is astrology scientific? Uh, spoiler alert, no, it's not. But, um, but just kind of saying, of course, that can't be true. People have, many people have done studies. I was reading one study um, in 1985. A scientist conducted a double-blind study to see a uh, test to see if astrological charts could actually predict people's personalities. Uh, and all these results were published in a journal. I think it was Nature. Um, here's one of the quotes. The scientists uh, asked 30 American and European astrologers ranked by their peers as among the best, so the best astrologers out there, to review the astrological charts for 116 people without meeting them in person. He then provided three personality descriptions for each of the 116 people. One description was the one that actually described the subject. The other two were real personality descriptions, but they just happened that they described other people. So the scientist, his name is Carlson, asked the astrologers to match the right personality with the person's astrological chart. 
Overall, the astrologers match one in three charts correctly, so their results are no better than they would have been based on random chance. Okay, as much as you or I could be an astrologer, these and these are the experts that did. Uh, what the uh, um, journal kind of suggested was that maybe the reason that some are better than others is they're much better at reading people when they're meeting them face to face and kind of trying to get all these other kind of external things that don't actually have anything to do with stars at all, but more about kind of reading per someone's personality. So astrology is demonstrably not true, and there are lots of other studies that do this that talk about that, yet many people still think that your sign matters. The horoscopes are not just entertainment sometimes, but some like people, you know, people can read into them. You know, we say we're all about science until we're not, of course. Really, though, I think the pull for astrology isn't necessarily because we believe it's true in the background or because it's something about science. I think it's because we love a story where the universe is all about us. Astrology tells you the story, the story of the universe is all about you. And you may not be into astrology, but you certainly like the story where you get to be the hero, where you get to be the main character, where the universe is all about you. And I know that's true for every single person here because it's true for every single human. It's true for all of us. Businesses know this, and they organize themselves around that. Marketing and advertising experts are kind of built around that. Our relationships can be built around that. But if we are swimming in this story that we've told ourselves, that it is all about us first, what kind of humans does that make us? Because if it's all about you, it can't be about me because it's all about you. If it's all about me, well, it certainly can't be about you if it's all about me. Life becomes a zero-sum game. Any goodness someone else gets is goodness that I could have gotten. Any kind of positive thing that someone else happened, maybe we're happy for them, but also like, oh, that's something that I could have had. And when we live that kind of life, what we end up doing is retreating to these siloed echo chambers where everyone around us believes the same things, does the same things, and is basically just as boring as us in all the same ways. That's why social media works so well. When you think about it, how self-centered do you have to be to think that all of life is about you? But of course, we all live that way. We all think that way. If the universe is about us, surely we will ruin it. And there's lots of examples of that, climate change being one of many. So ruin it, we have. Ruin it, we will do. What God teaches us in this story here is that the universe is not about us first. The stars do tell a story, just not about us. They tell a story about a real king, a good king, Jesus of Nazareth. And surrendering to that king is actually good for us and other people because the world actually gets better instead of worse. And what we see in, oh, was that popping up on there, nearby hotspot? Um, didn't channel it. Uh, and what we see in this story is how people respond to the story of a king, the king who isn't us. So there's a story of some people who seek him out. There's a story of one person who's very troubled by this and wants to stamp him out. And in the characters of this story, we see our own heart's reflection. The Magi seek this king. Herod is troubled by this king. And then we're actually going to uh, spend some time looking at how Jesus is, is the actual good and rightful king. And it's all about this question. How do we respond to King Jesus? How do we respond to King Jesus? The main thread we're, we're getting from the Magi in this story is it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about seeking the king. And if you have any questions as we go, if you go to RedeemerMCR.com ask, you can anonymously put your questions in, and we'll talk about it afterwards. So uh, the very first thing to notice with Magi, Matthew had done this a few times. We talked about this in the first and the second message already. But here there's another, uh, this is coming to the forefront again. Magi are outsiders. 
Magi are outsiders. They are from Babylon. Babylon, Babylon is like, if you support United, Babylon is Liverpool, and vice versa. Historical foes to the death. Babylon took over Israel. He made, they, they made them refugees. They stole them for themselves. As one commentator said, it's remarkable that they're mentioned here without any kind of disapproval. Like they, they just happen to be from there as if it's just normal piece of data. But it's not. The readers here would know, like, oh, Bab- that's, like, that's the, the bad place that people took a favor. Now, what were, like, magis exactly? Um, well, they were kind of like servants to kings. And a few centuries later, uh, the, uh, there's, like, a tradition that develops that magi themselves become kings. That's why we have the song, We Three Kings from Orientar. That happened in, like, three or 400 A.D. But magi weren't kings themselves. They were servants to kings. They are like, highly appointed political officials. Um, they weren't uh, elected, but they were kind of chosen by the king to help them. Uh, they were high up on the political ladder. Uh, and one definition of a magi that uh, in one of the commentaries I read said it was an important role in advising the king. Magi was applied more widely to learned men and priests who specialize in astrology and in the interpretation of dreams and in some cases the magical arts. So maybe uh, a magi for our day would be somebody who's really good at social media, who can kind of like read, what, read the room really well and then predict where things are going to go. Someone who's a real good like pollster kind of person. See, astrology does tell a story. It's just not the one that astrologers tell because it's not about us. I mean, Psalm 19, 1 through 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They're saying something. The heavens are saying something, not just like out there for no reason. They are saying something. To have Jesus recognized and honored first by people who weren't his own who worshiped other gods, who came from the bad guys, teaches us who Jesus was for. More than just one ethnicity, more than just those with traditional religious backgrounds. People who would be enemies. Something similar today might be someone high up in the Taliban. Although surely that person never could. A leader of the opposing political party. A frenemy colleague that you might have. We all have those people, surely, like that, not that person. So that's a little bit on the Magi. But how can we talk about the birth of Jesus without talking about the star, right? You got to talk about the star. What would a nativity play be without the star being involved in some way? You're like, we're really missing something here. Oh, yeah, the star, the big thing. So the outsiders are drawn in by this star. Um, it points to Jerusalem, but that's like a very generically drawn in. What, what the Magi need and what we also need to get more specific, we need scriptures to tell us the way. And so Matthew is writing to two uh, to specifically reference two Old, Old Testament passages here. Uh, the star in verse 2, it's talking about Numbers 24, 17, where uh, there's a quote here. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Matthew was writing in such a way that this, that he's referring back to, to Numbers. And then uh, Matthew quotes Micah 5, 2 in verse 6. So if you have verse 6 there, says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is who Matthew is bringing up, these references to what the Old Testament talked about, how the Messiah would come, what, what, it, would look, what it would look like. And so what is the Magi's response here? Those who are seeking the king, those who are saying it's all about him, uh, how do they respond? Well, they respond in worship and in gifts. The whole point of their journey was to worship this king in verse 2. That's the whole reason why they came from the east. To give this king their time and attention. The journey to this king was focused. 
the point, the, the thing that led the way was being able to see this king. The Magi's life from leaving Babylon to coming upon Bethlehem was all about worshiping the king. If life is all about him, it will change how and what we worship it and how we, how we go about this world. It will change it. It also will change how we use our gifts. So these Magi bring uh, these, this baby gifts. They wanted to bring something to this baby because this baby was the king. They maybe not have knew exactly what kind of king he was, but there's something important going on. Like the, st the stars are aligning for some kind of way. They set their gifts at the feet of this king for the king to use how and when he saw fit because it was about him. Even as a child, as a baby, he couldn't use frankincense whenever you might, I don't know, the right situation to even use frankincense. The baby couldn't you know, figure that out, but they gave it to this baby as his gift to use as he would deem fit. And may we really be the same as we lay down our gifts, our time, what we treasure, where we're talented. Because we often use the gifts that God gives us for ourselves first. That's probably, that's our generic, that's our default mode. You know, maybe God gets a bit, but, you know, just a bit. We don't want to be too keen. God has given you time. He's given you treasure. He's given you talents. I would love for us all, let's be like the Magi who say it's all about him and they lay it at his feet. They don't give something and say, yeah, but it must be used in this way. No, they surrender their gifts in order for God to use it the way that he wants. And in surrendering to the king, we let him use our gifts in the way he chooses and in the time that he wants. And living in this way does open our hearts to be able to live in a generous kind of way, a generous love. Now, the money we get from a paycheck, the best way to use it is to offer it up to him. Ask him how he wants you to use it. Where he has given us talents, the best way to use those God-given talents is to offer it up to him. Ask him. The time that we all equally have, do we want to use that for ourselves first or do we want to use that for him? Now, there's all sorts of other things we can say about that. Um, but let's be honest about one thing. There is a cost. There's definitely a cost. There was a huge cost to the Magi. They, how much of their life went on hold because they left Babylon? The cost of the journey. The cost of the gifts themselves, it was costly, but, but it was worth it for them. And generosity means giving when it hurts. It is costly, costly, but it's worth it because as we do, our hearts change and our hearts grow. And that's the kind of humanity that we really all kind of want. And it might be difficult for us to live that way, and when it comes down to it, we may not want to live that way, but really, that's how we want this world to, act, to work. So that's the, the Magi. So they were seeking god they were saying it's all about the king uh, let's talk about herod was troubled by the king herod like most kings think it's all about me you know if that's one's disposition if it's all about me then other competing stories about another king will be troubling troubling because i'm the king Who, who's this guy who's this upstart i'm the king so let's see how this works out here in, in these verses that we have the very first thing that we see is when it's all about you it affects your character herod is devious no one would say he's a good guy. No one has ever said he's a good guy. You know, you know, say what you will, but Herod was all right. No, he's not good. He is not working for others' good. He has to keep his plans hidden because if people found out what his plans actually were, they wouldn't follow through with it. And Magi didn't end up following through with it anyway. It's manipulative. In order for us to be kings and queens of our own universe, we always have to resort to manipulation. We have to manipulate the world around us. And Herod is just like that. Now notice, too, how others react to Herod in verse 3. It says, when Herod um, heard, he was dis uh, heard this about this new king, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So there's this weird kind of enmeshment that's going on here. All Jerusalem disturbed with Herod. 
this is what happens when you are uh, when your character is such where you're manipulating the world for it to all be about you. People instead of wanting to, to you know get pleasure for themselves or even God forbid please the Lord are thinking first about pleasing you. All of Jerusalem's trouble because Herod's trouble. That's not a healthy situation. That's not really great leadership. So Herod is not only not working for others' good. He's also he also puts other people in a position to feel like they have to placate him. If Herod's upset, we're upset. Does that dynamic ever go on in your family? If this person's upset, the whole family's messed up, right? We all know that. Or your friend group, it's the same kind of thing. Everything can be cool, but if that person, if there's something wrong there, it's going to mess it up. It's going to blow it all up. So Herod, uh, we see a little bit of his character there. Now, being all about me also affects our posture towards God's word. So Herod, he doesn't know the Bible for himself, he, but he, because he's the king, he, um, the ruler there, he has these experts he can call in. Um, but when he does seek it out, notice he is seeking the Bible out, but it's only to serve his own ends. He's not actually wanting to figure out what's going on so that he can go find Jesus and worship him too. He's so he can find Jesus and kill him. When he asks the religious leaders, hey, what's the deal with this like wannabe king back here? Well, he's doing so in order to firm up his own position, not to learn from what the Bible might have to say and change it or surrender it if it's different. He already has his opinions, and the Bible is not a part of forming him. The Bible is a part of using the Bible in order to continue going on. Now, Herod himself is uh, troubled, and I wonder, I have to wonder, if there's at least a bit of an imposter syndrome going on here because he's not really a rightful ruler. He was this puppet leader that was set up and controlled by Rome. He was part of Israel that should have been ruling Israel well, but basically Rome was behind the scenes pulling the strings. He wasn't really working for the people. He was working for this oppressive political state that through their taxes would grind. I mean, people were going into poverty because of Rome's taxes against them. That's not a rightful ruler. Not from, he's not from the royal line of David, as uh, Matthew's already told us about. And instead of serving other people, he's feasting upon their poverty. And why shouldn't he? He's the king. It's all about him. He's not a rightful ruler, and he certainly is not a good ruler. Nobody would call Herod a shepherd of Israel, or if they did, he's a very bad shepherd. If anything, he's a wolf. When it's all about me, we become self-serving in our character and how we view the Bible and how we treat others and in how we use our own position for power. One of my favorite artists is uh, this guy, Zoris Rouro. He lived, uh, most of his work is just after World War II, um, really influenced the likes of like Picasso and the movements that came after that. There's a series of etchings that I love, um, and it's not as sad as it sounds. It's called Miserere. It's like, oh, misery. Um, but it's all about, uh, it's uh, a bunch of etchings leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. I have a tattoo actually inspired by one of his works. Um, this particular etching behind me has the title, We Believe Ourselves Kings. It's an image of a bloated, garish man big chain around his neck, big crown weighing on his head to illustrate the absurdity and sadness of our own foolishness. We might look and point and think, well, we're not like that. And we're not like Herod, of course. Uh, we might even laugh, like, oh, Herod, what a idiot. Like, <laughs> who did he think he was? But of course, the longer we linger over these words, over images like this and words like this in Matthew, we realize this is less a picture of someone else as it is a mirror of our own hearts going on. We realize like the reason why these words are included in the Bible, and indeed the reason why Vero chose to create this work, was to push us deeper into honesty in our own soul, 
into more self-reflection. It's not a, are you like this or are you not? Are you like the Magi or are you like Herod? It's how are you like this? Because you are. How are we like Herod? We all believe ourselves kings and queens and our own little kingdom of our own control. So I wonder how that might come through in your character. In what ways do you resort to manipulation to get what you want? You can't say, oh, I don't, because that's not true. I know you do. Everybody does. In what ways do you do that? And if you don't know, maybe you can ask God for a bit of self-awareness or your friends. They might be quick to answer. <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe very, very slow and move on change the subject very quickly. If you have a good friend, they will honestly be able to tell you in love if you actually do want to know. Don't ask that if you don't want to know, because that just ruins friendships. What kind of space, though, do you give others in conversation, in your prayer life, in your time? What about your posture to the Bible? Is it a tool to reinforce what you already believe, or is it actually words from God that you have to surrender to? The way to find out is when we're presented with something that we don't like or that goes against you know, the grain of internally or culturally or whatever, then how do we respond then? That really tells you how are we surrendering to the Bible. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know we aren't the rightful rulers of our own life. We know that. that and we know we also don't make the best rulers of our own life. It, 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 that is just about us. We know that's not a good way to go. If we are kings and queens, that means others can't be. And that is not the way that Jesus taught us to live. So we have the Magi, we have Herod. Now we're going to switch to um, learn a little bit uh, from how Jesus is presented in these 12 verses here. And Jesus is presented as the good and rightful king. Actually, we've got to flip it first. Let's talk about rightful first. Now, Matthew's already kind of talked about where Jesus has come from, his like royal pedigree, but also he's talked about outsiders who are included, all that kind of stuff. But unlike Herod, especially here, unlike Herod, Jesus is the rightful king. Matthew has been telling us, is telling us, and will continue to tell us as we go through this book, that the king is Jesus. The stars have a line to tell, this, tell us this. You know when just, when everything seems to work out perfectly, when there's like all these moving parts and something, maybe it's an event or something went really well and you're like, it just like, it felt like the stars aligned for all of this to happen. Well, this is a situation where it actually did. It actually did align. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies from Numbers, from Micah, we didn't even get into 2 Samuel or Psalm 72. And in the verses previous to what we've talked about, and we're only in the first part of chapter 2 here, uh, we have reference to Isaiah chapter 7, 10, 61, Psalm 130, just to name a few. So Jesus is the one person who can say, and rightfully do so, it's all about me. People from far away in a religious different tradition, they saw it. They didn't miss it. Let's not miss it either. If he's the rightful king, then he's in charge. So let's assume for a moment that he's the rightful king. Maybe believe that, maybe not. Let's just put that on the shelf for a moment. Either way, there ought to be another question after that. Whether he's the rightful king or not, the question, is he good? What if he's a rightful king and really bad? And that's somebody we ought to like seek to tear down. He's in charge, maybe, okay, let's, I'll grant you that, but is he good? Many atheists I know are just angry theists. They hate the God who isn't there. And we all know people like that. We're like that. Similarly, most Christians I know don't also do not believe that God is actually good. They think he's out to get us. Now, wherever you are with God, whether you believe in him, sort of believe in him, full on don't believe in him, all of us are in the same boat with the same question, is he good? And we're told a few things here that get to that very question. Uh, just look at verse 6 with me. This Micah quote says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. We're going to look at that word rulers. For out of you will come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. So there's two words, ruler and shepherd. A ruler, uh, or maybe your translation, if you have a different one, could say leader, could say governor or something like that. When I hear the word ruler, I think of someone who's like telling me what to do and like dictating things and like a, like a stern kind of, this is the guy who's ruling us and he's kind of oppressive. But this word ruler actually means to, uh, to lead by guidance, to guide somebody. That's not very oppressive. It, it also means to consider or regard someone or something. So a leader who leads not by force or might or coercion, but through considerate guidance. That's what the word ruler here means. A leader who considers others. That's, that's a good kind of ruler. Not a foot stomping down on someone as much as a helping hand to someone who's already been stomped on. And that's Jesus, the good king. He's also called a shepherd. Jesus in John's gospel uh, says of himself, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, a shepherd, even though we might hear it and it sounds like kind of churchy because we say the word shepherd a lot, I don't know any shepherds. I think there's probably some people here who might or definitely have in the past. Um, I am not, I'm not around shepherds really often, but it probably won't come across as any kind of shock that a shepherd is not a rock star kind of position to have in life. You're not like the cool guy because you have sheep. That's not like the cool thing to do. It wasn't someone with a lot of cultural power, especially then. If you were a shepherd then, think of how often you showered or bathed or didn't. Kind of smelly, blue-collar, working-class kind of background. You're alone a lot, so you may not have loads of friends. You're not like the life of the party. This is how Jesus is described as a shepherd. Not a rock star, not a, an oppressive king, not the, uh, you know, the, the, some kind of flash and glitz and glamour. That's how he describes himself as a shepherd. Herod wants others to lay their, dice, lay their life down for him. More than that, they will be sacrificed so that he could stay in power, so that he could keep saying it's all about me. Herod had to kill others off. Well, how does Jesus work? Jesus, the good and rightful king, lays down his life for us. He becomes the sacrifice. He uses his power for our good so that we can say it's all about him. He is the rightful king, and he is a good king. All the other false narratives about us being the king, something else or someone else being the king, Everything will require us to sacrifice for it. Only Jesus, the good and rightful ruler, lays down his life for us first in a way that we will never and will never be asked to replicate. So through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and now his ascension as a good and rightful ruler, Jesus will shepherd his people. And it's because of that that he's worth our worship. He's worthy of worship. Because he is the good and rightful king, he's worth our worship. He's worth us orientating our lives around him instead of trying to get all the planets of our world to like align and orientate themselves around us. He's worth our time. He's worth our focus. He's worth our attention. This is why Sunday worship is such an important and necessary part of the Christian faith. Now, it's not like Sundays are an optional thing that are like, maybe it's kind of like a good idea. Like if Jesus is the king, then he is worth our worship. And of course, our worship is more than a gathering. Surely, it's, more, it's our whole lives. It's more than a gathering, but it's not less than one. Christians and the early church, by the way, worshiped together every single morning before they went off to work. They didn't have two days off. They didn't have one day off. They worked every single day, and they, didn't, they wouldn't eat. And before the, their long days of work, they met together to worship together. Now, if you're part of Redeemer, we're not going to ask you to come here at the Royal Oak at 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. every single day. We, really, we don't ask for that much. But what we will call people to is what we think 
from, uh, from what the Bible talks about and guidance that we get from the Lord, but we think will benefit people most in their walk in the Lord. And surely Sunday gathered worship is a massive part of that. So is the relationships in a missional community. And both of those things really require our presence, really require us to be there. It should be a priority for our lives because Jesus is worth our worship. And if Jesus is our king, he's worth our gifts. Like the magi who worship Jesus, we too should bring our gifts to the king. Now, whatever it is that God has blessed you with, time, money, talents, relationships, skills, your very presence, we should all lay it down before the feet of the king and ask him to do what he thinks is best. Now, sometimes when people say that, they're like, if I was to really do that, then I'd be like chucked out of my house because then I'm giving all my money to the church or something like that. The Redeemer is not asking for that. Um, you think like, oh, if, if I follow through with this, my life will be worse off. But actually, it's the opposite. If you follow through with this in the way that's right and proper and no one's asking anyone to take up a vow of poverty, um, your life is much better off. If you don't follow through in that generous way, you're missing out on, how, on, on a more generous life. And I think the real difficult part with this is it's hard because ultimately we want to be in control of our money, of our diary, of how we use our talents. What could it look like to be generous? There's a level of giving up kind of power over stuff and, and being generous. And we've already talked about the cost, um, and there is a cost to following Jesus. He doesn't call us to sacrifice our lives for him. He's done that for us, but there is a cost to following him. Whatever the cost might be, though, does not even come close in comparison to the cost that he has already paid for us. Jesus didn't give just like a little of his life. He didn't go through like a, things, a couple things that were maybe mildly inconvenient. He gave his whole life and he laid it down. He used his power to become powerless so that we could be empowered. Jesus used all the power that he had as God to become powerless, even as a child here, as a baby, so that we could be empowered. He has taken all the parts of us that are like Herod, all that manipulation, the self-obsession, even the punishment we deserve of death itself. He's taken it upon himself. And he puts a new life in its place in us. You will never, ever be able to outgive God. You will never, ever be able to outserve him, to do more than he's already done for you. Now, he's not asking you to give in order to make up for that either. He's asking you to forgive out of generosity that comes out of joy. Also, the cost that we pay by following Jesus also does not even come close in comparison to the benefits we receive from doing so. Through the high cost of Jesus' death, we receive every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1 says we will receive every spiritual blessing. How's that for, for a benefit? Every single one that's out there, we've received it past tense. We literally cannot be more, be more blessed than we already are right now. That means even when the circumstances of life are completely horrible, there is something good beyond measure that can never be taken from you. Every spiritual blessing through Jesus. So there is a cost to following him, but it's like nothing compared to the cost of him giving his life for us and the benefits that we get from following him. So how are we going to respond to King Jesus? He's a good and rightful king, and though we be like Herod, though his work, uh, through Jesus' work in us, we can work a little bit more and act a little bit more like the Magi. It's not about us, it's all about him. Now, one way that we remember this truth is by taking communion together. Now, later on in, in Matthew, and we're not going to get to this probably till around this time next year or something like that, um, we're going to read about the night when we humans betrayed Jesus in the ultimate way. We betrayed our good and rightful king. In Matthew 26, uh, Jesus, uh, 
this is the Last Supper. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. This is something that Jesus has instilled from when he was alive. That's a tradition we still get. I mean, if you think traditions in England go back far, and as an American, it's like kind of mind-boggling how far back traditions here go. This is a tradition going back to Jesus himself alive on earth, telling his disciples how to work, how to live. Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as Jesus, to his disciples, which includes us today, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there is something yet to, that we are anticipating as God's people. One day we are going to have a feast in the new heavens and earth as this world is made new, as we are being made new ourselves. And that is all included in the symbol of the blood and the symbol of the body of Jesus found in the bread and the cup. A symbol of Jesus being the good and rightful king found in the bread and the cup. What a good king that we serve. Now in a moment, we're going to sing some songs. And as we do, find a, a good moment for you to reflect on what maybe something came, jumped out from you from the text today. Or maybe something that just particularly jumped out you from uh, what we're singing today. Find a moment like that to eat and drink as we eat and drink together, though separate, uh, um, as we go. Uh, let me pray.